All right. I want to welcome everybody to the informal logic class. Tonight is the last week of logic. And next week we're going to be engaging in regular apologetics. I want to say that for those on the Internet. So I'm excited to get into this. You're going to see a lot of informal fallacies. And let me just introduce it by telling you that there are too many to even cover. So what I'm going to do is give you an overview. We'll get into as many of them as we can in the 50 minutes. But what I want you to think of is your notes as being a resource. So even though there's some that I'm not going to cover that are actually in your notes, you can keep them. And later on, let's say you're looking at somebody's argument and it doesn't seem to make sense. Maybe it's an informal fallacy and you can use this as a resource later. So think of it that way. Okay? well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we uh, we do thank you for tonight. We thank you for salvation and we give you praise for being both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Lord, tonight, I ask that you would be with us. Help equip us. Uh, Help us think in a more cogent manner so that we may dispel the myths of darkness that surround those who are perishing. Lord, that we may uh, be firmly grasped around their ankles, pleading them not to go to the depths of hell. Lord, help us be about the Great Commission and equip us to contend for the faith. And so, Lord, I ask that you would open these concepts to us all Help us think clearly tonight, all for the sake of your glory and your name. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now you recall what we've actually gotten done the last three weeks. Believe it or not, we've almost exhausted formal fallacies. Okay, so I'm sure that was a lot of fun for you. (laughs) I could tell it was a lot of fun for you. But this is going to be more fun. We're going to be looking at informal fallacies. So let me just make the distinction Formal versus informal fallacies, what are the differences? Well, again, if you recall, formal fallacies are errors in the structure or form of the argument. You remember that? And remember when we were talking about formal fallacies, we were dealing with if, whether something is valid or invalid, not necessarily if something's true. And remember we said if we find out that an argument is valid, if it's valid and the premises are true, the conclusion is necessarily true. So remember, there's a distinction between validity and truth. And the way we combine them is to say an argument is sound. If it's sound, it's both valid and true. Okay? Well, we're leaving that now. We're going to informal fallacies. And these are errors in reasoning not related to the form of the argument. So it's basically anything else. And there's a lot of them. There's a lot of different ways people make boo-boos when they're reasoning. Okay? And you'll see that. These are just a few of them. So, um, first of all, I want to talk about the two basic groups of informal fallacies. It's ambiguity. These are propositions that are unclear. And you're going to see that there's four of them. But then we're going to turn to the other group, which is relevance. These are propositions that are clear, but they do not address the issue at hand. And you're going to see that most of the fallacies that people engage in is where they're dealing with arguments, but they're not addressing the issue at hand. They're skirting around it. And that's most of the errors we commit as humans. We're just not really addressing what the argument's about. Okay? Now, I'm going to show you a little diagram that helps me kind of formulate what we have for formal and informal fallacies. So we already dealt with formal. This is all done here. Now we're going on to informal. Again, I showed you the two basic categories. We have ambiguity and we have relevance. But under relevance, we have two different categories, namely causal and non-causal. And we're just going to be dealing with non-causal types, okay? The causal types have to do with scientific reasoning. In fact, I have a little window here, yeah. Causal has to do with inductive or scientific arguments. Now, 
I put this on the Internet before I really proofread it, and I, I'd rather say this a little bit differently. The non-causals, it's not just deductive arguments because in informal fallacies, remember inductive reasoning is where you're looking at outside evidence. Some informal fallacies are dealing with outside evidence, the way we look at the world, but it's not in a controlled scientific test tube controlled environment. You see what I'm saying? So the causal type informal fallacies are just in the controlled scientific arena, whereas the non-causal can be in any arena, public opinion, uh, normal debate in the public square. Okay, that's the way I'd rather phrase it. However, I can say this much, causal fallacies always have to do with inductive arguments. Okay, I'm just saying that non-causal sometimes have to do with uh, inductive and deductive. That's all I want to point out. Okay, so I wish I would have changed that a little bit. Now, let me show you the different types of ambiguity. There's four different types. The first type is called equivocation. Now, you guys remember that we've already dealt with this to a certain degree. This is where a word or a phrase is used with two or more meanings. Okay? Uh, the next type is one called amphiboly. This is a better way of calling it is the ambiguity of relationship, where the meaning of a word or phrase is unclear, but not the grammatical construction. So the grammatical construction is what makes this unclear. Okay? Oh, I'm sorry. Clear. Yeah. <laughs> I should probably read my own slide. The meaning of the word or phrase is clear. Right. Thank you. Ambiguity of accent. This is the emphasis of a word or phrase uh, ends up changing the meaning. Okay. And then we have an ambiguity of circumstance. The condition or circumstances change the meaning of words or phrases. Now, let me give you an example of equivocation. And if you recall, it's always a word that ends up changing meaning. And you remember the one example that I used was where I told somebody, that they're, or they told me that my argument was sound, and then somebody else says, well, I hear coming from you is sound, right? They changed the definition of sound. Let me show you another one. It's kind of not... <laughs> this is one I came up with, so I apologize. These, these are, this is how I think in my head. Just think of about a mom telling her son, hey, wear your coat, it's cool outside. And the kid comes back, I don't have to, I'm a cool cat. All right, so in one instance, cool is used as the temperature, right? In the other sense, it's one of hipness, Okay. I'm sorry, I don't mean to throw us all back to the 60s or 70s, but I'm a cool cat or I'm a you know, hip dude or whatever you want to say. So you can see there's equivocation going on there, isn't there? The, the term has changed. Now, I want to talk about an example, and I have actually got an example from a Catholic apologist of equivocation. And where it comes from is Bob actually wrote an article on CIC, and it was about sola scriptura and how different false teachers are leading Protestants away from understanding God through the scriptures and they're leading them into non-biblical or unbiblical practices. And it gets into a discussion with this Mark Shea. He responds to Bob DeWay and what he does is he starts to attack the evangelical definition of the incarnation. But what I'm going to show you is that this Catholic apologist has loads of informal fallacies. So we're going to be looking at several of them as we go through tonight. So I'm going to show you an example of equivocation actually in literature from this Catholic apologist, okay? So again, you're going to see in this, this is Mark Shea, a Catholic apologist responding to Bob DeWay. And in the article, by the way, the article is called Fear of the Incarnation and Its Discontents, and it can be found on catholicexchange.com, the full thing, okay? But this is what he writes. He says, Evangelicals, like all Orthodox Christians, vigorously affirm the doctrine of the Incarnation, now, by the way, the next, this definition that he comes up with is a good definition. 
Okay, but you're going to see later on he ends up changing it. The incarnation is the faith of all Christians that God the Son, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and became man. That's a very good definition. The only thing I would add there is that he still remained fully God, fully man. So he was both. That's a great definition. Now, later in this next section, you're going to see how he changes the definition of incarnation. He goes on. He says, in evangelical culture, incarnation has tended to get prefaced with the definite article, the incarnation. Okay, so here is the definite article, the. The indefinite article would be a, correct? Now, there's a good reason why we use the definite article, the incarnation. How many here know of any other incarnation except the incarnation of Jesus Christ. There are no other ones. So certainly, it's a good thing that we use the definite article. If we use the indefinite article, that may imply that there are more than one incarnation, right? So it's, it's with good reason we use the incarnation. So he goes on, he says, its application in everyday evangelical life usually has the character of a doctrine which is believed very firmly. But the Catholic way, while affirming the uniqueness of the incarnation in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, also tends to see incarnation as an eternal reality to be lived and breathed by the follower of Jesus. Now, wait a minute. That's far different than the definition up here. If the incarnation is, in fact, the act by which God took on flesh and became fully God, fully man simultaneously, then how do we say it's a a reality to be lived and breathed by the follower of Jesus? That seems very ambiguous, does it not? What if I said, I believe that the and I don't remember what number he was, the 36th president of the United States was John F. Kennedy. But I also believe John F. Kennedy is a reality to be lived and breathed by the followers of John F. Kennedy. What does that mean? It's an absurdity. And do you see how he's changed the definition of incarnation? And why is he doing this? He's doing this to set all of his readers up to accept the doctrine that Jesus is somehow in the Eucharist. You see, God, the, the incarnation just isn't that. It's more than that. Jesus is present in the incarnation through transubstantiation. That's where they're trying to go with it. But he has to do this subtly by changing the definition. Okay? So very sneaky, but that's equivocation. And you'll see it all over. Equivocation is used all the time. It's one of the most common, in my opinion, it's one of the most common informal fallacies. Now I want to look at ambiguity of amphiboly and accent examples. Let me show you some amphiboly. These have to do with grammatical relationship. So think about this one. This is cute. This is Norman Geisler. He writes this one. The airplane took off slowly with Mary on it, her nose hugging the ground. Okay. Well, whose nose is hugging the ground? Is it the airplane or is it Mary? All right? We don't know. It's ambiguous. All right? I'll show you another one here. Save soap and waste paper. Now, what is waste? Is it a verb or is it an adjective? We don't know. Right? It's ambiguous. Here's one that a friend used to tell me all the time. I, I still can't figure it out quite, but I think it's, I think it's um, an example of this. In high school, he used to always just out of the blue say, on the other hand, she had warts. No, <laughs> we'd be driving and I'd be looking at him. Now, here's what I think. I think this is why it fits. Either it could be the gal was very nice. She had a great personality on one hand, but on the other hand, she had warts. Maybe that's one possibility. But the other possibility is, her one hand was just fine, but on her left one, she had warts. You know, we don't know what, what he's talking about. So that's part of ambiguity of amphibly there. Okay. Now, um, let me show you an accent example. And these are very simple. Uh, think about the way I love you is used here. The accent is going to be on love differently. 
So here the question is, I love you. The next one would be, I love you. And the next one is kind of insulting, I love you. <laughs> My wife, I think, has probably thought that a time or two. And then the other one is just a clear statement, I love you, right? And so again, here we have a change just because of the accent. So you can see how unclear we can be just by accenting different words or even syllables sometimes. Now, here's the final one. It's the ambiguity of circumstance. <laughs> this has always been um, in my mind as an airline pilot. So think about this situation. A person on the street yells to his longtime friend, Hi, Jack, right? And what's the result? They got together for lunch and had a stimulating conversation. That's situation A. Situation B, a person in the airport yells to his longtime friend, Hi, Jack. Result, a missed flight, an arrest record, and a long interrogation by the always jovial TSA agents. Much different, right? We have to watch out where we yell, Hi, Jack. We'll get ourselves in trouble. Um, here's one. I kind of thought this was cute, too. Um, Geisler had this one. Think about the circumstance where a five-year-old points to his little grandpa's pipe, and he says, Fire in the hole, Grandpa, right? That's far different than a U.S. Marine throwing a hand grenade saying fire in the hole, isn't it? Yeah. So circumstance can definitely determine what our words mean. We shifted now from ambiguity, and the rest, one, the rest of the fallacies we're going to be dealing with have to do with relevance. And again, the most common errors people make in the reasoning process is they, they come up with irrelevant things. They're just not talking about the issue at hand. Okay. So they are errors that don't address the issues. The first category of these is the attack category. This is where a human being is attacking another one. Um, they're, they're attacking the human, not the ideas that the human is coming up with. So the first one is called appeal to force. And I'm going to always have the Latin phrase here, but you don't have to know that. I just put, a, put it on there for your benefit for future reference. Uh, this is the argument that does not attempt to be relevant. It says, accept this as true or I'll hurt you. Okay, It's the straightforward uh, method. Now, we see this actually, an example of it in scriptures, Acts 540. Uh, the Jews, the leadership, they took his advice that was from Gamaliel. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, right? You either do what we say or we'll hurt you. That's the appeal to force. Um, here's an abusive argument. You've all have heard of the argument ad hominem. Ad hominem literally means against the man. So again, this argument is attacking the character of a, per- a person. It says reject their argument, they're a bad person. But it doesn't deal with the argument. It's just an attack on the person. And again, we see another one from Mark Shea. Mark Shea says later in this article, he calls it this, the truly strange case of a truly reformed, and by the way, that's a pejorative, a truly reformed author, Bob DeWay, who berates fellow Protestants at Christianity Today. Wow, you sound pretty evil, Bob. <laughs> and by the way, this truly reformed, he has a trademark next to it because it's, um, it's a pejorative term. And the reason I'm pointing this out is it's all over different people's articles. And we have to be open to this, not only because we want to see it in other people's arguments, but we want to be careful we don't do this. Notice he's accusing someone of berating fellow Protestants. Well, what if Pastor DeWay is actually warning the flock about teachings that go against the sound teaching of scripture then he's being a guardian of the flock he's being a true shepherd in fact he's contending earnestly for the faith once we're all handed down to the saints and it's god honoring but what this man is doing is he's accusing him of bad motives and of berating so in other words wouldn't it be better 
instead of attacking someone's motives or what they're doing, to just say, I take issue with this argument and then show some evidence. Okay, but he doesn't do that. Why? Because the evidence isn't on his side. That's the problem, okay? So when the evidence isn't on our side, what we do is we attack the person. Here's another one in Scripture, Matthew 11:19. Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. That was Jesus, the perfect one, the holy one of Israel, right? And yet he was not to be listened to because he was a bad man, according to the religious leaders. Uh, we'll continue on here with inappropriate authorities now. And this is one of my, the ones that really gets to me, um, again, it gets me riled up because it's used in the abortion debate. It's called an appeal to pity, and I like the Latin term, argumentum ad misericordium. It just sounds miserable, doesn't it? It's an emotional appeal that steers one away from true relevant facts. Let me show you an example. Luke 9.59, Jesus uh, says, And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Now, let me talk about this passage a little bit. There's a couple of different ways we can take this. This idea of um, when this man says, permit me to go bury my father, that may be an idiomatic statement, meaning that he wants to wait until his father dies and he's going to go after his inheritance. Okay? Or it could mean that his father's dead, but here's the issue. If his father's already dead, if he's during the mourning process, that usually took a week, he wouldn't be talking to Jesus. He'd be with his family. Okay? Okay, the only other option in that is that he may wait for a whole year until his father's flesh actually decays, and then the firstborn would take the bones, they'd go to the gravesite, and they would take the bones and they'd put them in a slot, and that way there'd be more room for the other part, the other members of the family when they died to go into the tomb as well. Either way, it doesn't seem real convincing, real pitiful, but nonetheless, what is the issue here? Remember, these are fallacies of relevance. He's appealing to some form of pity from the Lord. But what is the real issue? Why isn't it relevant? And I have it highlighted red. The reason why his argument isn't relevant is Jesus is the Lord. The man says it, but does he believe it? Kurios. But does he really believe that Jesus is the Lord of all, the creator of heavens and earth, and therefore this man does what he says regardless? Okay? That's the kind of obedience that's expected of us. All right? Let me give you the one that I deal with. I deal quite a bit with people in the abortion debate in informal manners, and I'm going to be doing it more formally later. But this is one that I hear all the time in the culture. If I don't have an abortion, I can never finish my college education and I will die a poor woman. Or there's something to that effect. Okay, It's a hardship. Now let me throw out this, and let's, let's think more cogently about this issue. What if I said to you that my next-door neighbor had a five-year-old and because her five-year-old ate a lot or you know, was expensive, she didn't really have a chance to enjoy life the way she wanted to, and she wanted to put her five-year-old to death. I would submit to you that nobody, hopefully nobody in our culture, would think that was a moral act. But why do people in our culture think that we can do that with the unborn? What's really the relevant argument? What's this argument really about an abortion? What the argument of abortion is about is who is the unborn? Are they human or are they not human? That's the only thing we should be arguing about in the abortion debate. If the unborn are human, we can't do anything to them. We can't murder them. If they're not human, we can do anything we want to them. Okay? But if they're human and we take their life, it's murder. So 
this appeal to pity isn't relevant because, again, if the five-year-old and the unborn are equally human, we certainly wouldn't murder the five-year-old and say, I can, do that. I, I can murder my five-year-old because, after all, I have a better life. We'd say that's immoral. But the reason why people think that they can do that to the unborn is they don't view them as human. And so I submit to you, when we argue the abortion debate, we just prove that the unborn are human. And we can do it logically and scientifically. And that's the only thing that we should be debating in the abortion issue. And unfortunately, our, our culture has decayed to the point where people are not able to reason and realize that that is the only issue at hand. Okay, They skirt around it through irrelevant arguments. All right. Now here's one. Appeal to the elite popularity. Argumentum ad populum. Accept this to be true because the in-crowd accepts it as true. Okay, examples. Uh, since inerrancy is a device of doctrine, we should reject it. We hear the National Council of Churches say that. Now remember, this type of fallacy is a fallacy where the elite in-crowd holds to it. It doesn't necessarily mean it's the popular opinion like the majority, 51% or more. It's just the in-crowd. Okay, It's the elite, the media, or whatever you want to say. The resurrection can't be true. The Sadducees didn't believe in it. Okay, The Sadducees were those who only hold to the Pentateuch. They were the ones who were in charge of the temple, and they're the ones who denied the resurrection. Again, this would be an appeal to an elite group. They didn't believe in it. Why should we? Now, here's appeal to the masses. It's consensus gentium, and it's a little bit different than the last one. This says, accept this because most people believe it is true. This is different than ad populum because this is predicated on the majority holding the view. So the other one was the elites hold to it, some elite group. This one is the masses hold to it, the majority. Okay. So therefore, um, this is a cute example, Geisler. But Columbus, no one believes the earth is round. right? Well, they were all wrong. He was right. There are many paths that lead to God. I think that's the predominant view in America, right? But are they right? If we shut down Guantanamo Bay, the world will like us better. I always throw back, you know, the world doesn't like our carrier battle groups either. Should we get rid of those? Right? Are the masses able to define what is morally right? Often we see that they can't. Okay? Uh, appeal to authority. Accept this just because some authority said it. Now let me put a caveat in here because we are people who accept things on authority. And what I'm saying here, notice in the, I have in the brackets, it says we should trust authority if we have good reason to do so. When we, this is a fallacy where people accept something just because an authority who has no credentials and really has no standing asserts something. In other words, if we have an authority that has expertise, has been considered reliable in the past, then we should accept their testimony or their argument, but we don't necessarily take it just because an authority says it. So let me just give you some examples. Global warming is true because Al Gore said it, right? That would be an example. The experts say men and women are the same. Well, my wife's pregnant, and I don't think I'm ever going to get pregnant. My uh, niece, she plays with dolls, and my little nephew plays with trucks. And my brother didn't teach him that. He runs into stuff, and she plays with dolls. Okay? Our, our men and, um, my friend bench presses 300 pounds, and the gal next to him was benching 65. Are really men and women made the same? Well, the experts say so, but does that correspond to reality? That's the issue. John 9.34, it's, remember this one? You were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. Here was the man who was blind, and then Jesus heals him, and they start berating him. They start saying, well, this is done by a sinner. It was done on the Sabbath. And what is the man's response? All I know is I was blind, and now I see. 
And so he says, here's the evidence. Well, they won't accept it because they've put themselves as the experts, right? So we don't care what the facts are. We're the experts. All right. Argument because of age. This fallacy states an argument is wrong just because it is an old argument. Example, the belief in a creator is old-fashioned. Do you know, really in the last, I think it was in the, it was really only within probably the last 80, maybe 100 years that it's really ever been an issue, well, maybe the last 120 years, that the majority of the population has not outright accepted in the world that there is a creator. In other words, it used to be uh, throughout all of history that people accepted the idea that there must be a creator. Well, that now is being rejected. People think, well, that's an old-fashioned idea. We know better today. So they're ruling out an argument merely because it's old-fashioned sometimes. Those old doctrines aren't relevant anymore. The emerging church is saying that, right? Here's argument to the future. Accept this view because future evidence will support this. Missing links might be found someday to support evolution. Here's one my nephew threw at me. He's an atheist, unfortunately. I pray for him every night. And he says, someday we might find proof of a multiverse. I use the cosmological argument that I'll be sharing with you week six when I prove the existence of God to atheists. And he said, maybe someday we might find evidence of a multiverse. Now, this is actually a form of what you'll see later called special pleading. But what's the problem with that? Well, we don't have any evidence now of a multiverse. Every single thing we see is bound by the laws of physics that we have. Okay? So how can we make an argument saying, well, maybe someday there'll be evidence that disproves you? Is that science? Isn't science supposed to be based on observation and what we know now? So in other words, you and I are the ones who are backed by science and they're the ones who aren't. Okay, so our views are those who I think should be in the colleges and they're the ones should be rejected because they're religious arguments, right? Well, I'll talk more about that week six. Um, Stacking the deck. This is another category where we are, uh, the first one here is begging the question, and uh, in this argument, the conclusion is actually sneaked into the premise. And the premise is, this is a circular argument where the conclusion becomes a premise. Let me talk about this one, because sometimes Christians use this type of fallacy. Uh, they'll say this. They'll say the Bible is inspired because 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture is inspired by God. Now, let me say this at the outset. I believe this. This is true. If God says something, it's true. I don't have to even believe it. It's just true. The problem is, is we're trying to convince those who don't believe it. And what we're saying is the Bible's true because the Bible says it's true. It's circular reasoning. All right. In fact, later on next week, actually, I'm going to be talking about the different modes of apologetics. And one of the modes of apologetics is called presuppositionalists. These are people who don't believe you can prove anything unless you already believe in Jesus. Okay, that's their mode of apologetics. They're Christians. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. But the problem with that is... They're asserting the conclusion they wish to prove. In other words, if you have to be a believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus says the Bible's true, the Bible says Jesus is true, Jesus says the Bible's true, the Bible says Jesus is true. It's circular, you see? But what we're going to do in classical apologetics is we're going to break in that circle and we're going to give evidence so that we may know, in fact, the Bible's true. And if the Bible's true, then what it says is true, and it, 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 obviously it says Jesus is true, and therefore we've broken into the circle. See, that's what we want to be about. That's our apologetic task. Okay? So think about this one. Catholics engage in this all the time. Catholics, they will say, uh, the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation is true, 
because the Pope affirmed it ex cathedra. Ex cathedra literally means from the seat. They believe in apostolic succession. They believe that the Pope sits literally in Moses' seat. That's what the, the seat they have in mind. So like um, a lot of the rabbis in ancient Israel, they would sit in a synagogue in Moses' seat. Okay? Well, that's what they're saying. So think about this. The Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation is true because the head Catholic says it's true. Okay? It's circular, isn't it? The sky is blue. This is a simple one because the blueness makes it look blue. Okay? That sounds like a five-year-old, right? But that's stacking the deck. Now, we'll go on to um, the straw man argument. And you're going to see straw man all over the place, too. This equivocation, ad hominem, straw man, this one is abused all the time. It's a false view or a caricature of the opponent's view. uh, or I'm sorry, a false view or a caricature of the opponent's view is made. This is a disingenuous act because it distorts the other person's argument. What you're going to be doing in the straw man is you set up an opponent's idea, and it's a really bad one usually. They don't even hold to it just so you can knock it down. You say, oh, this is what they believe, and then you knock it down. You go, ha, it's pathetic, right? And that's what the straw man is. So let me give you an example. I heard this one uh, thrown at us in seminary at Bethel. It was conservative Christians have an escapist mentality and therefore care nothing for the poor and the downtrodden. Well, I know a lot of conservative Christians who, sure, they believe in the rapture and they believe in the millennial kingdom, but they care a lot about the poor and the downtrodden. This is a straw man argument. They set it up to knock it down just to make us look bad. Uh, Here's one. Creationists believe in an earth that was made in 4004 B.C., Do you guys know where this comes from? There was some scholar, and I don't remember his name. What was his name? Usher. That was his last name. What he did is he believed that he could reckon through the genealogies in Genesis, and he could go through all the genealogies and come up mathematically with when the day the earth was created, or the year at least. Okay. Well, of course, the problem with that is not all our genealogies are complete. But... Notice this is a straw man argument because not all creationists hold to that. So you're basically saying all creationists hold to this view. The earth was made in 4004 B.C. Ah, isn't that ridiculous? And they push it over. Well, we don't all believe that. Okay? Here's one. I've already gone over this, but let me just do it again. I think it uh, bears repeating. There's a categorical syllogism. Everything needs a cause. God is a thing. God needs a cause. A lot of atheists try to say that's what we believe, and then they knock it down. They say, aha. That's irrational. But we don't believe that. The problem is in the first premise. We don't believe that everything needs a cause. The law of causality says only all effects must have a cause, right? So they're deliberately, or maybe they're not deliberately, they're they're probably deliberately misstating it, or they just don't know what we're saying. They don't know the law of causality. But either way, that's not our view, okay? It's not everything needs a cause, but only all effects need a cause. God is not an effect. All right, let me give you another example from this Catholic apologist of the straw man because I want you to see how these things work out in literature. Mark Shagan, notice this. He says, The emphasis on seeing the incarnation as a single event 2,000 years ago on the other side of the earth often makes evangelicals tend to vaguely see the incarnation as an episode which ended with the ascension of Christ into heaven. First of all... uh, (laughs) This isn't part of my argument, but I just was confused. Why would he mention on the other side of the earth? Does the location of Jesus' atonement, does it really matter? I mean, it matters in the sense that Jesus fulfilled prophecy because God prophesied. But let's say God prophesied and the whole Bible is predicated upon Jesus being born and dying in Canada. Does the atonement, does where the atonement happens really matter? So I don't know why he puts in it. It just seems irrelevant 
But notice the straw man argument comes into play here when he says the incarnation, we see it only as an episode which ended with the ascension of Christ into heaven, or we vaguely see it that way. Well, we don't, and I'll tell you why. Sound Christian doctrine, we believe that Jesus Christ, when he became fully God, fully man in the incarnation through the virgin birth, we call it sometimes, have you guys heard of the hypostatic union? Jesus has a fully uh, divine nature, fully human nature, and they will never not be there. They're eternal. So he will forevermore be the God-man. Currently, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. But this one who is fully God, fully man, is returning bodily. Acts chapter 1, remember the angels say, Men of Galilee, why do you gaze skyward? This same Jesus coming back in like manner. Uh, Zechariah 14 says that the Lord will descend and is set his feet on the Mount of Olives. It will split in two, right? So our doctrine and the importance of the incarnation does not end at the ascension for us, all right? Now, what's more, this was settled at Chalcedon. It was a... A church council that dealt with Christological heresies in 451. And I think even the Catholics believe this. So it's a little astonishing that he would bring this up. It's almost, and I'll show you again, he kind of raises the same thing. Let me show you another part of it. So again, that's not what our view is. So he sets it up as a straw man so he can knock it down. Then he continues, he says, Evangelicals tend to reply to the Catholic confidence that God will use matter and people to communicate his grace by saying God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now let me stop there. We believe that God will use matter and people to communicate his grace. Think about Romans chapter 10. Uh, Paul belabors the point. He says, well, how will they believe in what they have not heard? And how will they hear unless somebody preaches? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Blessed are the feet of those who bring good tidings. So yes, we believe that unless God, through the Holy Spirit, regenerates somebody's heart, They will not come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, but God also uses means. He uses the preaching of the gospel, doesn't he? Um, That's why Jesus commands us in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, go, therefore, and by the way, the therefore is because he has all authority. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So we believe in the means. God does use means. He uses preachers and so forth. So, again, straw man argument. Now, let me continue on here. The assumption is that spirit is spirit and matter is matter and never twain shall meet after the ascension. Well, again, we're not saying that matter will never meet with the spirit. In fact, we know 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. But at the rapture, our body and our soul will be reunited. And we're going to serve uh, Jesus Christ who's going to reign bodily from a physical location, right? From Jerusalem. So, again, this is a straw man argument. We don't separate eternally matter from spirit. No, we believe in a bodily resurrection, the bodily return of Christ, a literal thousand-year kingdom, and a literal uh, country named Israel, right? So, again, I think it's a straw man argument. And he makes so many of them. I had to cut this back, actually, a little bit because there's so many. But you can see, um, when you're careful and you look through people's arguments, you can see these a lot. Here's special pleading. You're going to see Catholics use this one, okay? Special pleading, in this fallacy, only the evidence that supports one view gets a hearing. If there are ten studies that show your view is false, ignore them and make a big point about the one that confirms your conclusion, okay? So, for instance, the possibility, this is an example we'll run into uh, week six. The possibility of an eternal universe is ruled out by the following evidence. So this is evidence that's on our side, that precludes the possibility of an eternal universe. Let me show you the evidence that we have. The second law of thermodynamics, the motion of the galaxies, 
background radiation echo, the gravitational pull insufficient to stop expansion. That one's important because some people have proposed the rebound theory. They say, yes, the uh, universe is expanding, but it's going to retract again. The problem is the physics and the gravitational pull that we know of isn't sufficient to ever pull it back again. It'll just keep expanding. Okay, so that's not um, so that's more evidence on our side. And then the center of mass consistent with Big Bang cosmology. In other words, there had to be a beginning. So all of this is evidence on our side that the universe had a beginning. And remember, all we have to do is prove that the universe isn't eternal. Because something's eternal. It's either the eternal universe or it's an eternal being outside the universe who we call God, right? That simple. So here's how they often will come back at us. And again, my cousin, or my nephew rather, did this. They'll say, maybe someday some physical law or finding will refute your evidence. Or maybe it's out there now. That's why it's not appealed to the future, because sometimes they believe it exists now. We just don't know about it yet. Okay? Well, that's special pleading. That's like saying, well, maybe there's pixie dust. Yes, all the evidence is on your side, but maybe there's something else out there. Well, what if I flew my airplane that way? My airplane is predicated, lift for an airplane is predicated on Bernoulli's principle. Okay? It's a fluid reaches a constriction. It has an increase in velocity, a decrease in pressure. That describes lift. But what if I said as an airline pilot, hey, I can't rely on that law forever. I'm not going to put flaps down for this takeoff. And I end up crashing into a bunch of buildings. And before the court, I say, you know, sure, all the evidence has pointed so far to the fact that I should be putting my flaps down. But there may be something someday that disproves that hypothesis. I'd be laughed out of the aviation industry, would I? So we don't ever live that way. But yet, that's all the atheists have. They have these, well, maybe someday. You know, that sort of argument. Special pleading. It's a fallacy. All right. Here's one of generalization. Clichés are fun. These sayings suffer from overgeneralization. They often use popular maxims that do not accord with the facts of a given case. Clichés never offer evidence for their conclusions. All right? So let's look at a few of them. To err is human, therefore the Bible must err because it was written by humans, right? Well, that would be an overgeneralization. Um, how about, I better not stand for Christ. After all, better to, uh, better to be safe than sorry, right? Well, of course, the safest place we can be is to be believers in Jesus Christ. We have eternity, don't we? So we are those who are willing to take a stand for Christ. And here is one that I love to see on bumper stickers. War is not the answer. Of course, it was the answer to the Nazi menace, Right? You know, it stopped that. I wasn't the, the Girl Scout troop, right? So it's cliche. It doesn't really answer. The... All right. Now, here's a reductive fallacy that I love. It's called the nothing buttery. Okay? It's a reductive fallacy that argues things are nothing more than some aspect of those things. That's a little ambiguous. Let me show you some examples. It'll be very clear. For instance, materialistic philosophers claim man is nothing but matter in motion. Now, yes, men are made of matter, but they're more than that, aren't they? They also have a soul, right? Men are far more than that than just matter in motion. The mind is nothing but the brain. Certainly the mind uses the brain, but it's also more than just mere chemical reactions. Think about the distinction between the mind and the brain. A good example I always heard of is take a peanut butter toast. Let's say you're on a diet and you're over your calories, right? And you want to lose weight. You're going to, go on a, you're going to run a marathon or whatever. I don't know. So you take your toast and you throw it out on the floor, now, or it was laying there, let's say. Your dog, if your dog sees the toast, its brain kicks in, it just goes and eats it. It doesn't think, well, how many calories am I at? See, that's the mind, you know. But you and I are able to say, well, you know, boy, that looks good, but I'm on a diet. See, that's the difference between the mind and the brain. We have a mind. It's more than the brain, okay? All right, it makes us distinguishable 
from the animal kingdom. All right, here's a genetic fallacy. This fallacy demands that something or someone be rejected because they came from a bad source. Here's my favorite. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Remember that? And, and by the way, how much time do we have? Um, do you remember in Matthew? I think it's Matthew chapter 2 when um, Matthew says, he uses a prophecy. He says, so it would be fulfilled by the prophets, plural, that he would be called a Nazarene. I remember a Jewish man calling into Hank Hanegraaff one time and he says, you know, nowhere does it say in the scriptures in the Old Testament that Jesus or the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. But notice that is the only prophecy that Matthew uses the plural. And I think that Matthew doesn't have in mind one single prophecy, but the totality of what the prophets were saying. And I think this gives us a clue here, this passage, because I think coming from Nazareth is a pejorative. And I, and I hate to say this, I have some Polish blood in me, but it would be like be calling someone a Polak. Do you know what I mean? They're a blockhead. And I, and I have Polish blood, so don't take any offense. Okay, But that's what it's like. See, the totality of the prophets, plural, were saying that he'd be despised. We see it in Isaiah 53. We see it all over the place. The suffering servant passages. Okay, And that's why we can say, if, a, if we have a, a Jewish man say, hey, where's that prophecy in the Bible? We say, well, here Matthew uses the plural prophets. Every other time he uses the singular prophet because he has one prophecy in mind. But he uses the plural here. Therefore, he's talking about the totality of what the Old Testament taught. Namely, Jesus would be despised. Can anything good come from Nazareth? I think that's... Uh, a helpful hint there. Okay? All right, that was free of charge. I didn't plan on going there with that one. All right, here is uh, the complex question. This is my favorite, actually, of all of them. This type of question asks simple yes or no. Oh, no, this isn't my favorite. Never mind. Type answers to complex questions. The question is unfair because multiple questions are actually being asked through the one question. Okay, so think about this. Here, It'll become very clear when you get into the examples. When did you stop beating your wife? Well, obviously, there's no nice answer to that, is it? Because any, any way you answer it, you're in trouble, right? Or here's one. How can you believe in a God who hates people and sends them to hell? Now, have you ever had that thrown at you? That's a lot, there's a lot loaded into that question. And you have to explain, first of all, that God exists, and the second, that he's holy, and you have to prove that he's holy, and then that you're a sinner. And there's a lot wrapped into that. Would a holy God, in fact, uh, and a just God not punish sin? Is there, can he be just if he doesn't punish sin? So there's a lot tied into that, and you can't just answer it simply. So it's a complex question. Here's a category mistake. These are fallacies that confuse two different categories. They compare apples to oranges. An example, what does blue taste like? Right? That would be a category error. Who made God? By definition, I, always, I hear parents say, oh, my child was so sharp the other day. They asked who made God, and I don't mean to poo-poo it, but by definition, God is the uncaused causer. By definition, he is the one who made all things. Okay, so it's, it's not as insightful questions we might like to think. It's a, it's a fallacy. Okay, who were Adam and Eve's parents? Okay, well, they didn't have any, right? All right, now let's move on to some more reductive ones. Argument of the beard. Now, why did they call this argument of the beard? I finally figured it out the other day. It's because this argument has to do with degree. And the debate is, when do you actually have a beard and when do you just have whiskers? Okay, so think about that. Uh, it's one of degree. When do you have a beard and when is it just you didn't shave for the morning or whatever, you know? So this fallacy says reject this because it differs only in degree from what you already reject. This fallacy falsely blurs crucial distinctions between people or objects. Let me give you some examples. The U.S. military and terrorists are morally the same. I've heard people reason that way. 
And this gets into, friends, this gets into um, biblical theology. Genesis 9-6, if a man sheds a man's blood, so by man shall his blood be shed. The government, Romans 13, is to restrain evil. Are we then, if, are we going to be in our nation, are we going to be people who reason and say there's no difference between the police who are trying to restrain the evildoer and the evildoer? Okay? And, and I'm seeing that in our culture, and I think it's because of biblical illiteracy. Al-Qaeda in Iraq are just like the Minutemen of the Revolutionary War. I heard, uh, I heard actually that comment made once. I think that's sad. Since all people are sinners, there's no difference between Adolf Hitler and Winston Churchill. Can you imagine people in the 1940s saying, I really don't know who to back. They're both wrong. Can you imagine? That's what's going on today. It's a reductive fallacy. Faulty dilemma. Putting people in an either-or situation when there are actually other alternatives. Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he should be born blind? It was actually a third alternative, namely to glorify God, right? To glorify Jesus. There's a third option. This is a hypothesis contrary to fact. This fallacy says things would be different if the other hypothesis was true. The problem is the other hypothesis is not true. Examples. If Adam never sinned, Jesus would not have to die. Okay, well, of course, you know, that's water under the bridge, isn't it? If we could believe that heaven and hell don't exist, we could live just for today. I thought of that one. That's what the Beatles are saying in that one song, right? I hate that song. Every time it comes on, I just think, what pagans, right? Of course, yeah, we could wish our life away, but that doesn't make it true, okay? So they fell into the hypothesis contrary to fact fallacy. So the next time you hear that Beatles song, you can bring that up. Prestige jargon. Now, this is my favorite one. This fallacy is one of snobbery, because the person says things in such complex jargon, no one can figure out what they are saying. My favorite one is my brother was an aerospace engineer, and he had, it was called, he had this handout that the U of M would send him, and there was a section called Dr. Clausen's Corner, and it was all of these, there was all these get-togethers where they'd have seminars, these engineers, and I took all of the titles and I ran them together. And so one day in science class, I was a young kid, I didn't know any better, I just asked the teacher, well, what about the non-homogeneous linear systems and calcular equations and exponential matrix functions and concavity points and deflection to find the quasi-static expansions of a deal equation, hmm? You know, and they were just like, what? And my wife always gives me grief. She goes, you know, you can't remember our anniversary, but you remember junk like that? Just useless information. But anyway, I always thought that was funny. It's like saying that, where you just, oh, this guy is so smart, I better, you know, you're just trying to buffalo people. Um, here's one from my instructor in his book. And it said, um, and I don't have the exact quote, but the gist of it was they shed off their organic embodiment. Okay? Now, that was the way of Laurent Schultz saying they died. All right? So to sound a little bit more sophisticated, it was they shed off their organic embodiment. Okay? So that was from his book, Reforming Theological Anthropology. Um, here's one we'll get from the atheist. Isn't the, or, yeah, from the atheist. Isn't the creation hypothesis bound to the reductionist pre-quantum notion of cause and effect? Now, what this is actually, you guys, is a fancy way. We're going to look at this week six, but quantum physics is a fancy way the atheists are going to dress up nothing doing something, because they're going to believe, or they do believe, that an electron, when it's boosted by a photon, it goes and traverses the intervening space by chance. They actually think chance can do something. And we'll talk all about that. But they're going to ascribe causal power to nothing. And they just dress it up with fancy jargon. So we think, wow, I can't compete with that. Now, oh, you guys, we're done. Well, we're done basically on time. We'll talk about this when we get back. And this will be kind of our discussion topic. How do we know God through language? Okay, and we'll be talking about that. And we'll talk a little bit about equivocation will come into play here again.